Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. When it comes to the vaccines themselves, I've had a lot of questions. I've seen emails from listeners across the country and repeatedly asking about how the actual vaccine distribution takes place, how the rollout happens, what the supply chain issues are, and transporting. And, uh, you know, we've talked about infrastructure in this country. What do we have available? What do we need? And then I found out about uh, vaccine waste, actually through my guest who's about to join us. And the World Health Organization estimating up to 50% of vaccines are wasted globally due to inappropriate infrastructure. So I uh, I read some articles uh, that were co-written by my guest and uh, COVID vaccine supplies causing an EU crisis, what's being done to speed up production. And vaccines are here, but how will we get them to billions of people? And my guest is Dr. Sarah Schiffling. She's from John Moores University in Liverpool in the UK. And Dr. Schiffling's focus is vaccine supply chains and specifically the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Schiffling, evening for you in the UK. Thank you very much for joining us. And how are you doing? Right, I'm doing well here over in Liverpool, where it's quite cold, but I guess not quite as cold as it's over your way. No, no, and you're very familiar with this country of ours. You lived in Montreal for a while. I did, actually, yes. I did a sandwich year during my undergraduate degree where I worked in Montreal. And I loved your email when you <laughs> sent me that you, you, you found out about snow in Montreal, and you also found by the end of the winter, a bus stop suddenly started to appear from underneath the snow pile. It just reminded me of my growing up years in Montreal. It was quite incredible. I thought I could handle snow reasonably well. I'm originally from a skiing area in Germany, but when after a couple of months of taking the same bus to work every day, suddenly a bus shelter appeared. I was rather <laughs> flabbergasted. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Schiffling, one of the most significant logistical challenges for transporting vaccines rather, from manufacturer to distribution sites, now given the storage temperature requirements and the different shelf life realities for, for example, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, what are the, what are the most significant logistical challenges that are faced? Well, you've just mentioned two of the key issues. We've got temperature requirements, obviously. Those vary between the different vaccines. So it varies between normal fridge temperatures, like every one of us has at home, and ultra-cold temperatures. So we're talking here minus 75 degrees centigrade, which isn't quite a normal fridge. These are set out in the authorization documents for each vaccine, so they differ between the different vaccines, which, of course, becomes a bit of a headache trying to coordinate all the different temperatures that they need. The good news is that for the last mile, so the final few hours or days, that can usually be done at higher temperatures. So not as every vaccination site across the world suddenly needs to have an ultra-cold freezer, which would just be unrealistic. But that is something to keep in mind. The temperature requirements make logistics more difficult. Then there's also a shelf life issue. This also varies by vaccine and varies depending on the temperature they kept at. So they're usually good for longer if they kept at colder temperatures. And then if you defrost them, they have a relatively limited shelf life. So some reports of vaccines needing to be used up very quickly. I think it was in Seattle over the weekend where they quickly had to vaccinate 600 people because they were about to run out of shelf life there. We need to transport fast enough to ensure that there's a maximum shelf life left at destination. So we don't want to dawdle around with a supply chain and then get to the final destination and pretty much we need to use this right now. 
Other concerns have been security, for example. Storage locations in many countries have been kept secret just to avoid that there's any tampering or anybody stealing the vaccine as well. In supply chain terms, we call this the stock shrinkage when things miraculously disappear. So there's been police escorts for vaccine deliveries, for example, to avoid anything happening to the vaccine. There's been some limited instances of tampering, but no big stories so far. Then, of course, there's a sheer magnitude of the logistics. I mean, usually we vaccinate a few people every day and kind of do it continuously. Or there's targeted immunization campaigns where you focus on a particular town or a school or something like that. But you've got a certain population, not the entire planet. So that needs transport capacity. That also needs people, just the drivers, everybody handling the vaccines, people storing these. And most importantly, it needs good planning and coordination, which I think is probably the biggest issue we're having. Yeah, uh, Dr. Shifley, please, would you speak as well to the need for proper infrastructure? This is a conversation that we're having in this country. We're waiting, of course, for the vaccines that we require, and there's a lot of debate about that in Canada. But the World Health Organization estimates, I found this quite amazing, actually, and disturbing, they're estimating up to 50% of vaccines are wasted globally due to inadequate logistics and infrastructure. And and I, I imagine that could translate into billions of doses of vaccine lost worldwide. Now, I think we're speaking here in, in terms beyond COVID-19, but the impact would be significant, would it not, on COVID, or potentially on COVID-19 vaccines? Absolutely. I mean, this sounds really shocking if you're thinking 50% of vaccines. How much do we need to produce to actually get everybody vaccinated? We have to consider that the 50% figure is an older estimate. It does not refer to this pandemic. Usually, we find that waste is lower in target vaccination campaigns. So if you imagine just everyday, ordinary vaccination, so you give one person a vaccination, then you might have to throw away the rest of the multi-dose vial because there's nobody else who needs that particular vaccination on that day in that particular clinic. Then you have vaccination campaigns where you are vaccinating an entire population, an entire school, an entire workplace, all at the same time. So it's much easier to plan. You're opening that vial and you know, okay, there's 10 people lined up here. We can actually use this entire material. So you can plan better according to shelf life. However, we have to say that vaccine will get wasted in the vaccination campaign. What we usually differentiate between is close vial wasted, so that's breakages, that's wrong temperatures, vials getting too hot or too cold, what's just reaching that expiry date. And we have the other class of waste, which is the open vial waste. That would be handling errors poor equipment being used or simply not being in, having enough patients in one place. It's really important to avoid waste. And one way that we're doing this is through training people to administer it and also transport it correctly. So, for example, there was one case in Germany where people were given a full vial per person rather than that being split across multiple people or temperature-sensitive shipments not being handled with care. So training is really, really important. But then talk about the infrastructure, of course, it's proper equipment. And that's not necessarily all within the supply chain. So it's not all about the storage spaces, the deep freezers and all that. But one of the biggest things that we have right now is using the correct syringes to get these six doses out of the Pfizer bio rather than five, if it's permitted in that particular country, of course. But that would just make up for a lot of doses. If you just get one more out of each individual bio, that's a lot of additional stuff. 
But also what we need is coming back to this group planning again. There's a lot of moving parts that need to fit together. And how much of this vaccine is going where and when and how does it get there? That's very often where we see this high wastage and where this 50% number of WHO comes from. It's just it doesn't all fit together. We get lost somewhere in between. Something expires on the way or is not treated correctly. Yeah, very concerning. And we, we become more aware directly here in our conversation with you as to the sensitivity of the uh, of the timelines involved. Now, we also look to the UK, and I've been talking about the, the rollout of the vaccine in the United Kingdom, England particularly, and what the numbers are and the expectations are, millions of doses by the middle of February. I don't know how that's going to work out for you now, given the EU's decision, but how is the UK addressing infrastructure and, and how well is the distribution of the vaccines working out in England? I mean, like you're saying, the key issue at the moment is the vaccine supply. How much are we getting? When are we getting it? Which vaccine are we getting? All that's very important for the supply chain, obviously. The UK is held by the centralised system of our national health service, which is often criticised, but in this instance, it really simplifies the coordinated approach of all these different areas working together. The logistics are a massive effort. We have armed forces supporting, we have a lot of volunteers working to just coordinate all of this and make sure that everything is right place, right time. Even supermarket chains have offered their refrigerated trucks to ensure that vaccine safely gets to where it needs to be deployed. The coordination is probably the most difficult part because there is a lot of uncertainty in the system at the moment. Uncertainty from the supply side, but also from the demand side. And that's where we see most of the effort at the moment to try and smooth this out, to get the uncertainty out of the system as much as possible. We need to acknowledge that this is a huge effort and it's still very new. We're still at the beginning of this vaccination campaign and yes, there are issues. So far, the UK seems to be doing quite well with this. It seems to be a well-coordinated approach and it seems to be working quite well if we're looking at the numbers that we've got, how many people have already been vaccinated. But of course, we need to consider that the UK has made the decision to delay the second dose as well. The numbers for first doses are obviously higher than they would be if we were holding back second dose. Dr. Schiffling, when it comes to transporting vaccines from Europe, from the manufacturers to this country, which hopefully is going to happen uh, sooner than later in, in the numbers that we want, um, is there a problem potentially with uh, air travel given the the decrease in passenger flights internationally? Because I understand that a lot of the vaccines, a lot of the product is actually transported on these planes. Yes, absolutely. Vaccines are typically transported by road and air. They are high volume and fairly low volume and weight. So high value items that don't weigh much, don't have a lot of space, take up a lot of space. Lots of air freight is typically shipped in the bellies of passenger aircraft. So that does definitely cause an issue here. The international transport capacity needed to distribute the COVID vaccines has been estimated to be around 8,000 or even 15,000 flights. Production capacity so far is just not that high, so freight demand isn't either. We're not exactly short of empty aircraft that can be chartered if need be, so so far this has not appeared to be a problem. However, as production capacity and therefore international shipments increase, we will have to see how the situation develops. 
And one more question for you in the limited time that we have. Let me come back to the issue of vaccines degrading each time that they're moved. How does that play into the distribution equation? And and how might it be addressed? Canada's a huge nation, as you know, having lived here, a huge nation in landmass with a relatively small but widely dispersed population of only 37 million. That really depends on the vaccine again. Again, set out in the authorization documents. It's mainly a concern for the mRNA vaccine, so Moderna or Pfizer-BioNTech. The UK authorization for the AstraZeneca vaccination, however, does not state a limit for the number of transitions, so the number of times it can be moved. Some vaccines are more stable than others here. That shows that a mix of vaccines is quite important for deployment worldwide. This can be an issue, for example, for countries that have a lot of islands as well. So archipelago countries like Indonesia, for example, with limited air connectivity to some of the islands. If we're looking at the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine as just an example here, within the UK authorization document, what is stipulated here is that it can be moved up to four transitions if it's at ultra-low temperatures. We're talking about minus 73 centigrade here. So that's four transitions that can be done or it can be moved at a higher temperature, two to eight degrees centigrade, in two journeys, each up to six hours, or where there's a real deployment need, up to 12 hours in one sitting. So we have some wriggle room here for the distribution here, but of course it needs to be an effort, needs to be a consideration of where do we go and how do we go there. So it comes back to air freight being rather important. Of course, air freight usually takes less time, so that's really important within our six-hour window or whatever it might be for different vaccines. But it also takes a consideration of which vaccine is best for which particular setting. You can't just say that one vaccine will cover everything. No, they won't, because we have different needs in different communities, in different locations here. It's a high transport effort for a country like Canada that is so widely distributed. But I also ask you to consider that we have had really successful vaccine campaigns in places, for example, for the Ebola vaccine, which also has ultra-cold requirements. And that was distributed in really remote regions of Africa that have very little infrastructure. And that was done successfully as well. So I wouldn't despair with that. There are different vaccines for different needs. And also we do have good logistics practices in place that can serve all of the different communities. Okay, I have 45 seconds, and I want to squeeze in one more question for you. Has there been something, anything at all, that's been that was unexpected that you had to deal with as far as the vaccine distribution in the UK has been concerned? Vaccine distribution, obviously, the current issue between the EU and the manufacturers is quite a big uh, news affair here at the moment of just going back and forth on who's going to get what. This is not unusual in global supply chains because we have companies that have different distribution hubs and different supply chains for different areas of the world. If you're looking at manufacturers of Nutella do the same sort of thing. They're looking at different areas of the world and having different supply chains, but that can be really difficult to communicate of how these different strategies work. So it's been interesting to see that development. Of course, it's a really concerning thing. What fascinates me the most is the global impact of all of this and looking at how we need to really get away from the vaccine nationalism and looking at the wider impact this has on the world. There's been a report published recently that the global economy could lose more than six, uh, nine trillion US dollar if governments fail to ensure developing economies have access to COVID-19 right. vaccines. 
A report by Morneau Chappelle published in December or about December found the mental health index for working Canadians dipped to a record low last month. Findings also showed a decline in workplace productivity with 27% of supervisors reporting their employees were less productive than in 2019. There are many other really interesting and very significant um, observations and uh, information provided to us in the report. And joining us on the program, Paula Allen, Morno Chappelle, Global Leader and Senior Vice President of Research and Total Wellbeing. Ms. Allen, thank you very much for the time. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I, I this one just sticks out. It just jumps out. For nine consecutive months, the mental health of Canadians has been significantly lower than prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it goes on to say, the working population is currently as distressed as the most distressed 1% of working Canadians prior to 2020. Would you speak to that, please? Because that is a deeply concerning piece of information. Yes, but it's an information piece that we all should have because it really heightened, it really highlights the risk that we are under and hopefully will prompt some action. So what happened is we've been collecting data for the past three years, so prior to 2020. And in April of 2020, we used uh, um, uh, the same measure that we had before of mental health, and we found this unbelievable decline. So increased anxiety, increased depression, increased sense of isolation, uh, lower optimism on virtually every single measure. So that was our crisis point right at the start of the pandemic when we had all this change and uncertainty introduced in our lives. But unfortunately, what's happened is that really uh, we've continued on having a number of points of change. So we get settled in one way, change happens. Uncertainty for many has actually increased uh, as a result of, of the measures required for the, pa- for the pandemic. And we are all experiencing intense emotional exhaustion. So we really haven't seen any recovery since the beginning of the pandemic from a mental health point of view. You know, I was about to say that a percentage of our listeners across the Chorus Radio Network across Canada are feeling that kind of emotion. And then you really put it into far better terms, more direct terms. We all are. We are all feeling certain, whether we're fully aware or not, whether fully impacted perhaps through job loss or not losing our jobs. But we're all, we're all feeling impact, psychological impact of the last 10 months. Yeah, without question. I mean, those, the, the, the pandemic hasn't impacted everyone equally. And from a mental health point of view, that's certainly uh, been evident as well. We've seen parents with everything that they're dealing with be impacted more. We've seen younger Canadians uh, be impacted more. A fascinating statistic is that uh, month after month after month, we've seen that those who have had their salaries reduced but still maintain their jobs, but a lot of organizations have been reducing salary in order to get past a difficult time, their mental health has been actually lower than people who even lost their jobs because of that limbo it it puts you in. So definitely something uh, that's been impacting people in different ways, but across the board, as you said, virtually everyone's level of anxiety, everyone's level of mental health risk has increased. I also find it really um, telling, and this is now looking at the present and taking that information from the present and transposing it to the future. For the seventh consecutive month, full-time students have had the lowest mental health score. That's not good. 
No, no, not not at, at all. I mean, it's, it's a difficult period of, of life, just generally speaking, because it is there is a fair bit of transition. But think about going through a life transition where you don't even have the things that actually bolster you. So when you are under a lot of stress, social support is critically important. And right now we have students who have high risk of isolation to begin with, not even having the social support that they usually would have in the same way. Because going to the university right now is looking very different to this college. On top of that, you're wondering what kind of work world you're going to be entering into. You know, uh, there's a lot of organizations who have stopped hiring. A lot of internships have been canceled. A lot of career paths have been laid to question. The level of uncertainty that you have as a result of this, this difference as a, due to the pandemic at the start of your career is much, much, much more intense than it would be when you're a little bit further on and even more intense if you're in that pre-career phase. Yeah, I just want to remind our listeners that the Mental Health Index is available at morneauchapelle.com, morneauchapelle.com. Uh, Ms. Allen, the, this is another one. The COVID-19 pandemic has led many Canadians to reconsider their personal and professional priorities. Over one quarter, 28% of individuals have thought about leaving their job, which, given the fact that people are trying to hang on to their jobs, that just tell you where, where people's minds are. The most reported reason for considering leaving is increased mental stress and strain at work, 53%. That's right. I mean, as human beings, I mean, we're meant to, if you put your hand on a stove, your, your, your reflex action is to take it away. Anything that doesn't feel comfortable, anything that feels like it's not in, in your best in, uh, health interest, our natural knee-jerk mental reaction is to want to exit. So this has been difficult for people. And, and what we found, though, is that th- what employers do make a difference. So even though we have such a high proportion of people thinking about leaving, leaving their jobs, and the, the way and by far the top reason, as you said, is mental stress at work, not, not personal, but, but at work, we found that those people who work for employers who are paying attention to mental health, who are providing support, who are speaking about the impact of the pandemic on mental health in an open way and all employee calls and communications, so they're destigmatizing it, their people are doing better. So there is something that employers can do to mitigate this risk. Yeah. What I find also encouraging is uh, when people, um, let me see, over one-third of respondents, 36%, report being concerned about a co-worker's mental health. And that, to me, speaks to a group of people who are starting to look outside their own issues and saying, is there somebody that needs help? And I don't know if we're going as far as saying, I'll step up to provide some assistance, but it's being recognized. Yeah, and recognition is the first point to be able to do what you said, which is to provide that support. I think, I think you know, it, it is concerning that we're seeing, you know, one-third uh, one third of people are seeing distress in someone else. But we already know from our other me- measures that the distress is happening. The fact that people are noticing, though, is great. It says that even though we're not with each other in the same way, even though a lot of coworkers are only seeing their other coworkers through digital means, you know, telephone, video conference, 
we're able to have enough of a connection where we're able to pick up the stress and, and pick up the behavior change uh, that is that is often the red flag. So that's good. That's, that's good. That means that we do at least have that kind of connection between each other. And again, what we do about it makes all the difference. We don't have to become counselors. We don't have to take on that responsibility. But just being human and telling the other person that you care about them, telling them that you notice something different and you're concerned can really help help that person move on to the next step. And, and even better, if you have resources you can recommend, like an employee assistance program, if one is available through an employer, or any of the public resources that we have, such as um, myicbt.com, which is a free program that's offered through the Ontario government. Well, you know, as I read through the, uh, the Mental Health Index, again, December 2020, I found, I kept thinking this is really important information to have because, first of all, we know, we have a good idea of what's going on. We don't feel like, like it's just us, just not me personally. It's everybody's. We're all in this together. And this is all, it's, the more information you have, the better off you are. What's the takeaway when you go back and you look at the entire uh, study for, for December and, and where we are after these nine, ten months? What's the takeaway? The takeaway is, is that we have to take action. So just like, you know, even before pandemic, we needed to take care of our health. We also needed to take care of our mental health. We are doing more now as a result of the pandemic because the risk is heightened. You know, we have masks. We are physical distancing. We're washing our hands more intently. We're, we're doing things to protect our own health and the health of others. It is the exact same thing from a mental health point of view. Our risk is heightened. So having balance in your life, making sure that it isn't just work and worry that you have as part of your your mental experience, seeking and giving social support is really important. And also, again, mental health is as much of a collective responsibility as is the virus. If you see someone else struggling, have a conversation and have them know that you care. One of the issues that is brought up regularly, daily, in emails to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com is the issue of lockdowns and the issues that people expressing their points of view about steps that have been taken by various levels of government. And so I listen, pay attention, we've talked about it, and uh, earlier in the week, I saw an open letter, an, op- an op-ed piece, actually, written by Preston Manning, senior political figure in this country, former leader of the Re- Reform Party and uh, the Manning Center. And I, uh, I guess I go back about 30 years interviewing Mr. Manning and uh, always enjoyed our conversations. And so in the National Post, there was this open letter, this op-ed, lockdown rules are violating our rights. I'm calling on the Justice Minister to intervene. And Preston Manning joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. How are you, Mr. Manning? I'm good, Roy. Good to talk to you. Now, we spent a lot of time together, you and I, over the years talking politics, and I'll never forget the day during an election campaign when one of my idiot friends, who did a great impression of Jean Chrétien, called in to talk to you during the during our during our call-in, but we got rid of him fast. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Nightmare times. Mr. Manning, yours is a respected political and social voice in this country. 
And you decided to write a letter to the federal justice minister, David Lametti, <laughs> declaring lockdown rules are violating the charter rights of Canadians. Uh, look, I see that argument daily in listener contact with me. Would you tell us what charter rights, and, and let me begin with section two of the charter, which includes freedom of association. And, and you, you write, you actually re- reference section two early on in your letter to Mr. Lometti. Would you tell us what your concerns, concerns are with what's being done to section well, two? Well, first of all, Roy, in that letter, and I, I do this whenever I talk on this subject, I, I make, uh, uh, the point that I'm as concerned about uh, COVID, uh, the coronavirus and its impacts, uh, and agree on the need for health protection measures. I, I myself am uh, in a vulnerable group because of age and uh, and a certain lung uh, history in our family. So at the first point I made is nobody is saying that this uh, coronavirus problem is not a serious one requiring actions by the government. But uh, the second point I make, and this is what I tried to get to in that letter, I- I'm also a Canadian. You-, you know the old joke, why did the Canadian cross the road? To get to the middle. We, we-, we Canadians are supposed to have a almost instinctive desire to find the balance between extremes. And uh, so what I wrote the minister about is I think we need a-, a much greater effort to strike a balance between the health protection measures and the protection of the rights and freedoms guaranteed in the Constitution that enable Canadians to take care of themselves, uh, a better balance between our concern for people's physical well-being and a concern for their social, financial, and economic well-being. So that was really what my, uh, my plea was, was for balance. And then coming to your question about what are some examples of the infringements of rights, Two of the major ones, you, you can refer to the ones that you, you mentioned, the infringement on freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and so forth. But the two that I, I stress, Section 6B of the Charter says Canadians have a right to gain a livelihood, which includes the right to work and the right to operate a business, and that that, range, uh, that right is infringed for hundreds of thousands of people when you lock down major components of the uh, economy. And, and then Sections 3 and 4 guarantee our democratic rights, which go uh, far beyond what's in the Charter. And when you shut down or, or limit the democratic institutions, the, the sittings of Parliament of the legislators, you infringe on those rights. So the rest of my letter to the Minister was, I think there's things that can be done to strike a better balance and that's what I was pleading with him and the Justice Committee to uh, investigate and pursue. Yeah, now, I just want to focus on two, which you mentioned in your letter, and you're very strong on Section 2 of the Charter. Mobility rights, which are critical, and the right to pursue, and you mentioned this, the gaining of a livelihood. And when I read that, I thought of all of the interviews that I've done with Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, small businesses in this country of ours, which in normal times would employ just over 8 million Canadians. Mr. Kelly told us two weeks ago, and this is a study done by the CFIB, that 181,000 small business owners in this country are poised to close their doors for good. That would jeopardize 2.4 million jobs. And then we, you know, we've talked to Mr. Kelly and others in the past about small businesses being set, um, uh, standards been set for them 
that was not set for the big box stores that might have been right down the street or just across the street from them. So the, the whole idea here of this of the charter granting Canadians the right to pursue a gaining of a livelihood, to me, Mr. Manning, is compromised. Yes, no, I think you're dead right. And, uh, and small business has been uh, enormously uh, hurt. Uh, and what I tr- tried to get the minister to do is that one of the things I think the Justice Department should do is do these impact assessments on these health protection measures. What are the impact? Not just what are the impacts on the health side, which are important, but what are the economic impacts? What are the financial impacts? What are the social impacts? And then present measures for striking a, a balance. But right now, the, the government's focus it tends to be entirely on the health side and ignore, or even deny these other impacts, which are, are are causing enormous long-term damage to to Canadians. So politicians will say, and you've heard it, and I've heard it, that what they're doing is for the public good, that it's for the safety of Canadians. And I agree with you 100%. This is a really serious issue that we're dealing with, this pandemic, this coronavirus. And steps have to be taken to control the spread as much as possible. But at the same time, we have to maintain, and some provinces, I think, are doing a better job of this than others, we have to maintain the rights of Canadians to live their lives. And I just wonder, and when I spoke with um, the uh, executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association on this program uh, several times, and uh, and he told us, uh, during our first conversation, his concern was that potentially, with each compromising, or with each compromising of the freedoms or uh, or, the, or the, the, the you know the freedoms that we have as Canadians, each time the government does one compromises one, it becomes easier the next time. Do you share that concern? Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, and you know, of course, you, you and I. Well, I'm longer in the tooth than you are, Roy. But I, I don't know why the current crop, particularly the prime minister, do, doesn't learn some lessons from history on this subject. Remember 1970, there was the FLQ crisis in Quebec. Pierre yep. Trudeau was the prime minister who'd been a great advocate of rights and freedoms. And the, a lot of the rights and freedoms that are in the Constitution are there because he insisted upon it. But there was this crisis, and what did he do? He invoked the War Measures Act, which infringed on the civil liberties of every Canadian right across the country, a draconian measure that went way too far than it had to. And a bunch of the premiers at the time, Harry Strom was premier in Alberta, Wacky Bennett was in B.C., Robarts was in uh, in uh, Ontario, and, and several libertarians went to Trudeau and went to John Turner, who was his uh, justice minister, and pleaded with him, introduce emergency uh, legislation that's less draconian than the War Measures Act, that can be more specialized and balanced in, in dealing with that crisis, but not affecting everybody in the whole darn country. And the Trudeau and Turner refused, and it wasn't until 1988, I think, when Mulroney introduced the Current Emergencies Act, which is more nuanced and balanced. Now, here we are again, X years later, you got a public emergency, this time created by a disease, and the current prime minister, son of Pierre Trudeau, does exactly the same thing. He imposes measures that go way too far in restricting civil liberties when there are other ways of handling it that are more balanced. Well, why we don't learn from this, why somebody doesn't stand up in that parliament, they'd have to be an old guy like me and recount that history. Why Why do we repeat the mistakes 
of the past, particularly when it comes to striking a balance between emergence, dealing with emergencies and, and preserving our rights and freedoms. I was expecting an email like this, and it arrived from Dennis, and he says in part, lockdowns are are working. We don't need Preston Manning undermining government efforts to rein in this deadly virus. Exceptional times equals exceptional measures. What do you say to Dennis? Well, I'd say they're, they're not uh, working, and uh, I would say that the, uh, the economic consequences the, the 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 other consequences for canadians in the end are going to be even far uh, worse than the consequences of the virus itself and i'm not denying the importance for health protection measures but i'm saying we have to get balance and have uh, measures that protect us from these other consequences uh, I'd use the Parliament of Canada for example. This, you know, the Parliament used to sit for about average about 120 days a year. Last year it sat for 86, a 30 percent reduction in Parliament's uh, sitting at a time when you're in a national emergency, when Parliament ought to be there both to represent what the effects are and to hold the government accountable. Not now, so I'm saying there's no circumstance under which the Parliament should be shut down or the legislature. If you're going to have them operate during this crisis, yes, impose more drastic health protection measures. If they have to sit in a, a hockey stadium with their desks 25 feet apart, do that. If masks aren't good enough, put them in space suits. If the, you need to spray, give every page a 50-gallon tank of spray and let them spray every 15 minutes. Uh, undertake major health protection measures, but don't shut the institution down. And then I say the same thing on the on the economy. Well, you also said, wrote in your letter, and uh, this is absolutely correct, and I mentioned it before the break, Section 1 of the Charter does permit governments to take certain actions to limit rights of Canadians, but the government also then has a responsibility, and not only a responsibility, the demand to provide uh, Canadians with an appropriate explanation about any reductions of freedoms, and Canadians have the constitutional and charter rights to challenge government removal of freedoms in the courts of Canada, but that's an expensive proposition for an individual Canadian. You mentioned that in your letter to Mr. Lametti. Would you address that? Yes, well, uh, as, as, as you've said, the, the, one, the only provision in the Constitution for uh, redressing the problem, if you believe your rights are infringed, is to appeal to what the Constitution calls a court of competent jurisdiction. But uh, uh, most Canadians don't even know they have that right. A, a lot of uh, Canadians in poverty or new Canadians can't be expected to know that or to exercise that right, which means equality of access is a problem. And, and what the courts will eventually probably say on this is, look, th this is primarily a policy uh, issue, and they'll throw it back to the politicians, which is why I aim my letter more at the Parliament and the elected people. Look, there are things you can do to redress these uh, infringements and violations of rights and freedoms. You don't have to be told by the court to do it. You can do it on your own initiative. Now, now the, the other point, Ryan, you, you make is the actual wording in the Constitution is that the government can limit your rights if it can demonstrate and these are the exact words, that demonstrate the reasonableness of the infringement. And that's fair enough, but the, the government has not done that uh, with respect to many of these infringements. They've particularly not demonstrated the reasonableness of these infringements to the actual people whose rights have been infringed. They, they haven't told any of these religious institutions specifically 
this is the reason why we're doing this, and this is why we think it's justifiable. They, they haven't said that to the small businesses. They made general uh, generalizations on this subject. So even that one provision of the Constitution has not been adhered to in this case. Well, Mr. Manning, if I can just conclude by saying that there's a reason for these stipulations and these expectations of government to be in the Charter in and in the Constitution, and they're written specifically to protect the rights of individual Canadians to challenge what governments are doing and also require governments to be responsible to the people. That's why those provisions are in the Charter and the Constitution. Yeah, and, and uh, Roy, just in conclusion, if people are sitting there saying, oh, well, what can I do? What can I do about it? What, one thing you can do is you can contact your elected representative, and I do this municipally, provincially, and, and federally, and say, look, th- these are the impact. Th- this is how these health protection measures are impacting on me. If there's positive impact, say that. Give them credit for credits due. But if they're negative, say that this, these are the negative impacts, and will you please come up with measures that balance the protection of my health with the protection of my social and economic and financial well-being. Enough people saying that might make this balance uh, imperative uh, a little more important to the elected pool. Okay. Mr. Manning, just remind us of the title of your most recent book. Uh, Do something. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Good talking to you. Always look forward to the conversation with our guest now, Dr. Eric Cam, Professor of Macroeconomics at Ryerson University. And I, I always say, Dr. Cam, thank you very much for the time. I always say that what I really like about you is you don't have a you don't have a political correct body and bone in your body. You just call it the way you see it, the way it is, right? based on your knowledge and experience. So thanks for doing that. Well, anytime. I, I actually I have as they say, I have no, uh, I have no dog in this race. I, uh, I don't represent shareholders. I don't represent any political party. And that's actually the, the fun of these appearances. As I know many, many people I hear on the media, and I, I like to listen to everybody, but let's face it, um, if you have an employer that is actively pursuing an agenda, then you better be at least, if not subservient, then respectful of your employer, or you're going to find yourself looking for uh, a new employer. I work for a university, and uh, while there are rules, um, they're a little bit like Groucho Marx's principles. If you don't like them, there's others. (laughs) Let me get to the first story with you, and this is the one that has really had the whole world talking over the last couple of weeks, and still today. The GameStop shares phenomenon. Would you share with us your sense of what's going on here? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to tell the listeners that in true keeping with me and my history, I made no money off of this, and I tend to do very, very poorly when it comes to the stock market. So this GameStop idea, I mean, it's an episode in short-run fluctuations in the stock market, uh, but what I like about it, what I was kind of hoping we could discuss, is it's combined with the macroeconomic variables that I don't think we speak about uh, near enough. And namely, that's expectations, risk, and uncertainty. And all of these are very, very powerful um, in the market. So if you'll allow me, I mean, first of all, I think we should demystify the, the stock market because I think some people have, think there's an allure or, if you'll excuse the term, um, a sexiness about it. But the truth is that stocks or, or shares of a company 
represent ownership or equity in a firm, which, depending on the type of stock, and we don't have to get into it, give shareholders uh, some rights or some claims on earnings. Um, but like any market, uh, the stock market is just where buyers and sellers or demanders and suppliers come together to buy and sell their shares. And there was a time when that was done on a trading floor. Now that can be anywhere uh, behind an electronic uh, impulse, behind a keyboard. And then share prices, the part that I enjoy, are simply set by the most powerful factors that economics has, supply and demand, as buyers and sellers uh, place orders and then sell orders. So what happened this week? And, and I preface my comments again by saying I'm actually not an investor. Um, anything that I have in terms of wealth, I, put in, I like to put into real estate because, as my grandfather always told me, you can't go wrong with real estate. So, but um, what happened this week, essentially, is something called shorting or short selling. And that's when an investor borrows shares and then immediately sells them. Or as my brother, who is an active investor, says, you sell something you don't own. And you hope then that you can scoop them up later at a lower price and return them to the lender and pocket the difference. Now, that's, that's effectively what happened. But shorting is based on short-term expectations of buyers and sellers and related fluctuations in the market. And that's a whole lot riskier than just buying stocks and taking what's called a long position. So to get to finally your question, uh, a group of investors online realized the stocks were being bet against. They were being shorted, or, or people were betting the stock price would fall. And instead of allowing it to keep falling, they created a cartel, some organized group of investors to keep the price high and rising. So their going short strategy failed, and investors who entered the market sequentially started to lose and lose more money until eventually people started losing a fortune. So I hope that that's not too drowned in theory because I try to bring these things to the masses. It's a play on the market. It's a strategy. And I think the lesson here is that like any good strategy, you can win or lose. Yeah. So you had some situations where hedge funds were losing money and the, the, the so-called little guy was making money. Yeah, correct. That's what you, right, because the hedge funds are big enough and they have enough wealth that they can they can sell short, and when the market turns against them, they can continue to increase their position to try to stabilize their position, and in this case, blindly not realizing that there were these forces competing against them until finally they couldn't afford to buy back the shares. And then they started to crash, and as you said, and as, if anybody took the time to watch the movie The Big Short, which came out a few years ago, uh, the quote-unquote little guy did very well, and some large hedge funds uh, found themselves out of business. And, and I think it's a fascinating story. And I think that there's really two directions that this can teach us. Uh, I don't recommend that everybody jump into the market and start shorting the market. I think that, uh, well, first of all, I don't recommend everyone just jumping into the market because I think you should educate yourself. But what does it mean, I think, in terms of you and I talk a lot about broadly what is an economy and what does it mean? And I think in terms of what would I like people to take out of this lesson um, is that, number one, like any other market, the stock market can be manipulated, and it is absolutely nothing more than a gamble. I think people should realize that expectations can be wrong, 
Short-term fluctuations can be very aggressive and very powerful. And things like shorting are a very, very risky play. And then again, in even more general terms, let's just never forget that demand and supply are equally powerful forces. People do get together, and there is collusive behavior in any capitalist economy. We like to call them cartels. Some people call them collusion. Uh, any way you slice it, ask yourself why the price of gas keeps changing at the same time uh, all over the city. And then at the end of the day, people who lose money are angry, and people who make money are very happy. And again, that's just the nature of the stock market. I think sometimes it looks very, very seductive to people to jump in, but if you're doing that without educating yourself, it's like walking up to a craps table in Las Vegas, never having understood anything about craps and saying, cost me the dice. Yeah, whenever I've stood outside a casino, I've always said to whoever's been with me, they didn't build that place because they lose. Oh, they didn't lose. No, of course not. Las Vegas is a city <laughs> built on very, very poor maps. And yeah. if you want to see yeah. some of the most pathetic things you've ever heard, I've only been to Vegas twice. Stand outside a casino and listen to people. And I'll tell you two quick stories. I remember the bus going by in Vegas, and it said that the Stratosphere Hotel pays back 91%. And I heard a gentleman on the street go, I can't get 91% at my bank. And so I walked up to that gentleman, because I was kind of an arrogant 25-year-old, and I said, you think that's a good deal? And he said, I can't get 91%. And I said, I'll make you a deal. You give me every dollar bill in your wallet, and I'll give you back 91 cents. And he said, that's not what the bus said. And I said, that's exactly, <laughs> that's what, exactly the what the bus said. And he was exactly what the bus and, said. And then my other, my other favorite story involves my, my mom's brother. Um, and he came home from Vegas, and he was bragging about how he got his, his breakfast, lunch, and dinner comped at the hotel all four days he was there. And so I mean, he was bragging, and he had this continental breakfast and his steak dinner, and he was bragging to beat the band about all this free food he got in Las Vegas. And so I said to my uncle, I said, how much did you lose at the, at the, at the table? He said about $30,000. Listen, I t I'll leave this with you. You know that line, and don't go away, because we want to talk to you some more after the break. But you know that line, uh, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? You know what stays in Vegas? The money that you brought with you. That's what stays in Vegas. It's like the guy who said, I arrived in Las Vegas in a $200,000 Rolls Royce. And I left in a half-million-dollar Greyhound bus. Um, just hold on, Dr. Cam. We're going to come back. I want to talk about the Canadian economy as well. Where is Canada's economy after close to $400 billion in 2020 deficit? A trillion-dollar national debt. Provinces racking up additional debt. Businesses locked down, some provinces more than others. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business warning 181,000 small business owners may close their doors for good with $2.4 million jobs in jeopardy keystone xl cancelled and other pipeline projects in jeopardy for some reason people in this country some people in this country gloat about that get your head straight um and america's new president's by american policy with a policy office to enforce this in washington that's not going to be good for canada and uh, COVID is not under control and so we're going to bury ourselves in additional debt cause more mental health anguish, see more jobs disappear, 
1.3 million Canadian jobs recently disappeared over a six-month period. So, Professor Cam, when we look at the economy of this country, and we're still speculating there'll be a spring election, the vaccine rollout's going to have a lot to do with whether or not that happens, as Daryl Bricker from Ipsos told us yesterday. But where do we stand? We have a trillion dollars spent since 2019. We were just talking about the stock market. Where's the return on that? Where's the in tandem with spending economic growth strategy? Um, Mr. Trudeau talked about building back better. Building back what? Where's the strategy beyond borrowing many more billions of dollars? Do you see anything really of significant value here? No. And in fact, I'm probably going to flush any opportunity I had to speak at the Liberal Convention. But I see absolutely nothing solid in anything coming out of uh, the Prime Minister's office right now. I mean, you talk about the return. There is no return, as per se. There's only two ways to look at the economy. Things are either in nominal terms or they're in real terms. Nominal terms are in dollars. And while they're interesting to discuss, they're, they're not valuable. We can't make comparisons across countries or, or our own country year after year if all we're doing is dealing in nominal terms. And I, use, I, I, I always use this as an example for people, and they tend to like it, which is if I tell you, you have $1,000 in your wallet, is that a lot of money? And, you know, my students all say, yes, it is. But if you don't know the price of what you're going to buy, then that, that amount of money is useless. So it's, for me, it's purchasing power. It's in real terms that I want to talk about growth. And this strategy has nothing to do with growth. And I will not use the name of a popular company in this country. But there is a, um, an industry that will come into your home, and instead of fixing the structural issues in your home, they will, in a sense, put a facelift or a a cover on any room in your house and make it look brand new. And so while it structurally or functionally looks like a brand new whatever room you want to talk about, uh, it's still rotting under what they have installed. And I really liken that, sadly, to what's going on in the economy right now. They're giving away hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's, again, in nominal terms. So it's keeping money in people's wallets. But it's not really accounting at all for any type of real growth, because there is none. There is effectively no private sector growth right now. Even industries that are, quote-unquote, doing well can't overcompensate for the other industries that are at dead zero or even marginally above zero. We've talked about the transportation industry, and uh, my aunt, who's a travel agent, said it couldn't get worse. Well, Thursday it got worse as the airlines announced they're not going to sun destinations. So I guess I get really tired of the government trying to put um, uh, lipstick on this by saying we're keeping money in your wallet. Yes, you are. You are keeping money in people's wallets, but... I know I'm starting to ramble and we're up against the clock, but the economy is not a magic lever. It is not suspended animation. You can't just stop an economy like Larry King wants to do with his body and then bring it out of cryogenic freezing years later. There's going to be so little left, and the startup cost to bringing it back is going to be so high, I don't think Canadians are well informed. No, and you know, where's the international investment in Canada over the longer term? Where would investors place massive amounts of money? Used to be the energy sector, but that golden goose was strangled. Bill C-48 and 69 took care of some of that. And what's being produced in Canada? What does the $2.4 billion strategic innovation fund actually do to drive the economy in a focused and globally competitive arena? Nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. I mean, it's got to be focused on the real drivers of economic growth, and that's either got to be consumption, investment, or technological advance, and it's, and it's taking care of all but three of those things. It is, Roy, we've talked about this before, we'll talk about it again. The government is keeping liquidity in the economy to a certain minimum level, and they want to get a lot of applause for that, and I guess you know, I guess if you set the bar low enough, you're going to get over it. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It's not cryogenically frozen. Right now, they're pretending it is. And when they reopen this economy, the difficulties they're going to have, they think they can just, you know, drop a writ and at 9.01 a.m. start a fledgling economy to take off exactly where we left off last March. And they are kidding themselves. The economic downturn that we are in is far worse than people have any idea. Yeah, well, Professor Cam, Canadians who kept their jobs have saved money, and that is going to help, you know, with with consumption when people start to spend again. But that money's finite. It's not investment money. It's not investment money, and I'm glad that you brought up investment money so we can end the way we began. I we have 30 seconds. Of, They're all yours. Okay, what a lot of people have to do right now is, again, go back to our first example and talk about their tolerance for risk and uncertainty. People have their own. They can't be talked in or out of it, and it's got to be respected to figure out what am I going to do with the wealth that I have. So I think that we've got to talk about risk in future episodes. We've got to talk about uncertainty. And if you want to talk about what are people doing with their savings right now, they are not investing in Canada right now. Nobody is, and I don't even want to go on anymore because I'm going to be called overly negative tomorrow on Twitter. Well, you're always called welcome on this program, and my, my listeners get in touch with me regularly, well, every day, and ask for you to come back. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.